From Cross Culture Church in Raleigh, this is Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is away this week, but our youth pastor, Ivy Rhodes, has prepared a great message for us this week. Now here's Pastor Ivy. We are going to be looking in Colossians, so I encourage you right now, go ahead, open up your Bible if you have one. If you don't, that's fine. I totally understand. If you've never been to our church before, we're going to have it up on the screen. If you've never been to church before, you don't go to church often, uh, this is a, a great place to be today. So I'm encouraged by what we're going to talk about today, and I will, I will just be up front with you. I had a little bit of a struggle with this passage this week. Um, as I was going through it, I just had so much uh, maybe that I wanted to say, but so many things that were good things, but things that maybe weren't God things. And so I wanted to bring to you guys today this passage in a way that I felt like God, how God was speaking through it to us and to the people it was written to. So if you open up to Colossians, you can go ahead and move over to chapter uh, 2. We're going to look in chapter 2 in just a minute. And then we're going to move into chapter 3. And if you have a digital version, totally okay to use iPads or phones or something like that. Or whatever kind of tablet you have. Totally okay to use that here. We're fine with that. But if you want to go ahead and open up to Colossians, that'd be great. I don't know about you guys, but um, 12 years old is kind of an awkward age. Would you guys agree with that? I deal with a lot of students, and uh, 12 years old is an awkward age. And it's because you're trying to be mature. There's some things you want to do to be mature, but in reality, you're still kind of a, well, you're a kid. You're not kind of a kid. You're, you're a kid. And so you, you rarely get either of them right. You know what I'm saying? Like you rarely get being a kid right, and you rarely get being an adult right. And you kind of fall in this weird place in the middle that makes no sense to really anybody. And he's like, he's 12, isn't he? You know? And he has, you have this identity crisis of who you are. I, my dad used to do this to me all the time. Maybe you had people that did this to you. I inherited this thing. And uh, it's when the kid wakes up on their birthday, you look at him and say, ah, you're 12 years old. Do you feel any different? And of course the answer is no. You don't feel any different. There's, you're like, well, Dad, yesterday I was 11 years old and 364 days, and now that I'm 11 years, I mean, I'm 12 years old, I feel completely different. Everything has changed. Well, no, it doesn't happen, but you wake up and you're like, well, I'm 12 today, so I need to be mature. And so maybe you come up with some rules. Okay, rule number one for being 12 years old now, I can't watch Barney anymore, or I at least can't let people know that I watch Barney anymore, because mature people do not ever watch Barney. You stop watching Barney. You just cut him out. Cold turkey. Boom. No more Pokemon cards. I know. I know. Hang on. We're getting there. No more Pokemon cards because that's what... That was the 11-year-old me. And so the rule for being mature is no more Pokemon cards. And no more tears. Because real men don't cry. And you try to make your voice deep, but he goes, Don't cry. And then... No more balloon animals, because a 12-year-old does not play with balloon animals. And so maybe you wake up and you ask the question, now what? I'm 12. And this is a thing I ran into a couple, uh, for the past several months, I've run into this and realizing this little funny dynamic. The kid's 11 years old, boy or girl, 11 years old and younger, uh, uh, for background knowledge, on the weekends, um, Friday nights and Saturday nights, sometimes I 
make balloons at restaurants and walk around to tables and people give me like a dollar or two for every balloon I make. That's like a side job I have. So just so you understand what's going on here, I'm not just randomly making balloons for kids. Um, so um, so uh, kids 11 years and younger, when you go up to their table, like, oh, I want a balloon. Give me a balloon. Give me a balloon. I want a balloon. And they're like freaking out and they're waving to you across the restaurant and they're jumping up in the chair and their parents are like, please get over here so my kid stops acting like a fool. And so that's 11 years old and younger. But I've noticed this thing right around 12 years old. Kind of stop wanting balloons. And it's like, it's almost immediate. It's like, I'll walk up to the table, maybe they have a younger brother or sister, or maybe not, and I'll walk up and be like, you want to, would you like a balloon? I can make some cool stuff, maybe a T-Rex or a sword, because those are things 12-year-olds like, I guess, I think. And they're like, no. And, and I've actually had them say this to me. I'm a little too old for balloons now. And it, it, it's, really, it's really a kind of funny dynamic, because the funniest part is, at around 15 or 16, they start wanting balloons again. It's hilarious. It's really funny. And, and so this is what I think is kind of happen, happening. See, at 12 years old, you mix up what it means to be mature. Because 12-year-olds, mature people, don't watch Barney. Mature people don't cry. Mature people don't get balloons. And mature people don't play with Pokemon cards. And the 12-year-old thinks that those certain things define maturity. But as they get older, they understand that that's not necessarily what identifies you as being mature. Because maturity is so much f- more. It's not about following a, sort of let- a certain set of rules that are, these are the maturity rules. And then once you reach a certain age, you start doing these things. But it's much different than that. It's about orienting your life in such a way that you're going towards certain goals in certain ways. And as he becomes, that 12-year-old boy becomes more comfortable with his identity in maturity, he then starts asking for balloons because he's not afraid that somebody's going to think he's immature because he asked for a balloon because he is identified as mature as a 16 year old can be and they start to see barney again now let me explain this you think mature people don't watch barney i can't believe it but 16 years old 17 years old they can drive again their nephew or niece or brother or sister wants to go to a barney show all of a sudden they realize that there are proper times for a 17 year old to go to a barney concert right that 12 year old would never go not going. Maybe they realize that there are certain times when tears are acceptable and even deserved because they've matured enough to realize that real men do cry and he'll play Pokemon because I can't figure out why you would ever stop playing Pokemon. And so then we kind of run into this when we become believers. We, um, when I was 14, became a believer in Jesus Christ, I had this crazy experience where I just felt the presence of God all over me, which sounds super weird. And I know, I know what you're thinking. That's really weird. But I was like sweating and stuff and I just couldn't help it. I had to go forward and get things right with God. And so I said to God, finally, I said, God, I want to follow you. I want to give my life to you. I want you to be my leader and forgiver. I'm tired of trying to do it on my own. And I got to that point and it was an emotional moment. And then church was over and the piano stopped playing and we sat down. We were then told to go to Sunday school, went off to Sunday school looked at my Sunday school teacher in the eyes, and I said, now what? It doesn't feel that much different. I know I was just, I had a new birthday, I get it, but I don't feel that much different. I think this is a common question when we come to Christ that we just start, we say, now what? We prayed a prayer, we walked an aisle, we got baptized, we do. And then we get stuck in this, I'm a Christian. So, there are things that Christians do and don't do. And we set up this, this set of rules that Christians do and don't do. One of them might be, 
well, we're going to church because I think that's what we're supposed to do. Because Christians go to church. And so we're going to church. And if we're going to be a Christian, we're going to go to church. Boom. Put it on the top of our list. And we go, try to go at least, you know, a couple times a month, once a month, maybe uh, every week, whatever it may be. We, whatever we decide is, is what a Christian should do, and we do it. And then we say, okay, there's some other things. I need to, I need to figure this out. So what is a Christian going to do? What is a Christian going to do? I know, I know, I got it. I'll stop cussing as much. That's it. Because Christians don't cuss as much. And so I'm going to stop cussing as much, and only when it really deserves a really strong word or something. Maybe then, maybe then but most of the time, I'm just going to cut it all out because Christians don't cuss, and we create this rule. And then, well, we stop drinking a whole bunch because this is a Baptist church and Baptists don't drink. So we set up a rule. Baptists don't drink around each other. Have you, have, you know how to, do you know how to stop a Baptist from drinking at a party? Invite two of them and they won't drink. And some of us are living our, our relationships and we're years into our relationship with Christ and we've asked the now what question. We've become so comfortable with the now what question that we've come up with not much. And Christianity gets reduced down to outward rules and appearances. And we start finding ourselves in our rules that we've set up, which is another word for religion. If you know our new motto that we've been saying, it's not about a religion, it's about a relationship. Setting up rules and finding our identity in those rules is only religion. And we miss not what, but who we should find our identity in. Who we should find our identity in. This is nothing new. We look at the Bible all the way through Genesis, up through the time of Jesus, up to Paul and what we're going to read today. The people have been trying to find their worth in rules and trying to get closer to God through rules. And Paul, if you don't know who Paul is, Paul like, wrote like half of the New Testament. He was the greatest uh, missionary of the first century and maybe even of all time. He started the churches and in, in some way we... It can be very thankful for what Paul did because we inherited what Paul did because a church had a church, had a church, had a church, had a church, and then you get cross-culture church 2,000 years later, right? And so there's Paul. And, and he, if anybody understood an identity crisis, he understood it because he was a Pharisee. I don't know if you know much about these guys, but they weren't Jesus' favorite people. If you read through the Gospels, which I'm doing right now, I'm in Matthew. Jesus calls them things like snakes. I don't call people I like snakes. He calls them things like sons of hell. Yow! That's pretty, that's pretty bad news. And this is who Paul was. And a Pharisee was just this, for lack of a better term, professional Jewish person. That's what they did. They, they acted Jewish. They were the most Jewish people around. And when somebody wasn't acting Jewish enough, they corrected them. Jesus not following the Sabbath? Ah, ha, ha, you're not acting like a Jew, Jesus. You know, get right, get your disciples right, fix them. They're eating grain on the Sabbath, God forbid. This is what they did. We see in that relationship they have with Jesus. And they made rules for the rules, for the rules, for the rules, for the law of God. So that if God said, don't cross that line over there and you'll be in sin, they said, well, this line is good over here. We're going to set up a line way over here. And that way we're nowhere close to breaking God's law because we haven't broken this one. And Jesus is like, that's bogus. That's religion. And they miss the heart of God's rules. If you want to read more about that, we can't get into it all today. don't have enough time. But if you want to read more about that, look in Matthew chapter 5. 
is Jesus goes through the rules and he gives, he gives the greater rule. And he goes through and he kind of tells these, uh, these Pharisees what is right and uh, how he changes their perception, or at least changes the people's perception of what is right and wrong. These are the kind of things they said, don't touch this thing. Don't eat that. Don't hang out with those people. Don't go near this thing or near this place. Don't do all these things set up on top. And there was this heavy weight. And Paul, we're going to look at his words in just a minute. Paul he calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. There was a point in his life when he was all about being the good guy. All about following the rules of the rules of the rules of the rules. He even started, uh, he even supported the killing of Christians as as an accessory to murder, to stoning, as they stoned Stephen, he supported that because those Christians didn't follow the rules. If anybody understands an identity crisis of this is what I think it means to love God and this is what it actually means to love God, it's Paul because on the road to Damascus, Jesus breaks into his light, just boom, breaks into his life with a shining light and and, and voices coming out of the light, and he sees Jesus, and he's like, Lord. And it changes him from that point on. He no longer becomes this Pharisee rule follower, but becomes a devoted follower of Christ to the point that he, as I said, was the most influential missionary of the first century. He thought knowing God was all about following the rules. He found it complete. He found out, though, it wasn't about following the rules, but identifying himself with Christ. So he writes the book of Colossians. And kind of the background of this book is there's like this kind of Jewish mysticism going on. And it's influenced the church in Colossae. And they started to think that you could be closer to God. You could be in a better relationship with God if you followed certain rules. And Paul, being the rule follower that he was, says, I lived that life. I was there. It's a sham, man. It's, it's nothing. It's a dead end. And you're not going to find your worth in rules. You're going to find your worth in a person. Colossians 2, 20 says this. You want to read with me. If you died with the Messiah to the elemental forces of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? In other words, if, if you died with Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ... Why do you still live like you aren't? Why do you still live like these rules mean anything? These rules are from the earth. They're just worldly rules, meaning rules that are meant for the here and now. Okay, verse 21. So this is what the rules and the regulations are. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destroyed by being used up, and they are commands and doctrines of men. I can't think of anything worse than a doctrine of man. We're not talking about a doctrine of God. We're talking about a doctrine of man. And Paul says that's what these rules are. These rules of don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, and all that stuff. They're just rules set on top of rules. They're set on top of rules to make you feel like you're religious, to make you feel like you're close to God. But in the end, they're empty. Verse 23. All of these, the rules, have a reputation of wisdom by promoting ascetic practices, humility, and severe treatment of the body. They are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. So all these rules you're following, all this stuff you're feeling like maybe gets you closer to God, they just surface. They don't really address what's wrong with you. They just make you feel good about yourself. Ah, you know, I 
I beat myself 25 times today because of what I did, and it was wrong, and man, I feel better. You almost feel a Colossian church asking here because there's this, there's this shift from chapter 2 to chapter 3. And it's kind of like uh, you, they're asking this question, okay, and Paul's sensing this, I'm sure, as he's getting through this thing. They're asking this question, okay, Paul, we're believers in Jesus now. This is the beginning. This is just a few years after Jesus' death and resurrection. We, we believed in Jesus, and now what? Because, man, if Following those rules seems like the right thing, but you're saying it's not the right thing. What does it look like to actually be a follower of Christ? Paul responds and says, it's all about your identity. It's all about your identity. As a follower of Christ, there are some incredible things that Christ has done for you and some incredible things that are true of you as a believer. If you're not a believer, they're not true of you. If you are a believer, they are true of you. There are some incredible things that are true of you, whether you believe it or not. See, when God looks at you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees you as Christ. If you're a believer, you are completely wrapped up in who Christ is. See, because when he died for your sins, you died for your sins. Your sins were paid for when Christ died. And when Christ resurrected, you were resurrected. When Christ is hidden in God, so are you. He is your life. When he was revealed, when he will be revealed, when he comes back a second time, and I know that sounds pretty weird, talking about the future like that, but when he comes back and he is revealed, you will be revealed. Now what? God looks at you and sees Christ. It's time to start realizing who you really are and living inside that. Or said another way, you love God because of what he's done for you. Out of that, you want to please him. Not a set of rules that are set up, but a heart that is pointed toward God in such a way that you say, my heavenly father, I love you because you gave me life. You gave me resurrection. You gave me all that I am. And you gave me eternity with you and a relationship with you. And for some reason that I don't understand the miracle that we can move close to you, God. You gave us this. And because I am so grateful for the gift that you have given, I want to live my life out in a way that pleases you to the best of my abilities. And we stop asking the question, how far can I go? And start asking the question, what pleases my God? And Paul says this. So... Chapter 3. If you have been raised with the Messiah, seek what is above, where the Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on what is above, not on what is on earth. Let's pray. This morning, God, we get into kind of a little bit of a difficult subject to understand, the idea of being identified with you. And so as God sees us, we also should see us. So today I pray that you'll help us to understand and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. First off, living life in the light of our identity with Christ, number one, pushes us to focus our lives on eternity. Living life in the light of our identity with Christ pushes us to focus our lives on eternity. I love how the New International Version interprets this verse. It really pulls out a facet of seeking as we, as we look at uh, verse 1. And I just want to encourage you, as I said, read Matthew 5. You know, if you ever get stuck on a verse, if you go to a, a, a website like YouVersion or you go to a 
Bible Gateway or something like that, and you're stuck on a verse. They have other versions there. Maybe you want to check out some of those other versions, really good translations. But sometimes they pull out other, other sides and help you understand things that are maybe another version makes a little more confusion, confusing or something like that. And you can kind of look at that. And so I love how the NIV pulls this out, which is the New International Version. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Set your passions on things above, that the things that you are passionate about should have a heavenly focus. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Christ is seated there in heaven, in power. Verse 2, set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. So fix your mind, fix your thoughts, fix your heart, fix your passions on God, that everything in your life will be focused toward eternity and not just for the here and now. It's not about setting up 700 rules to feel like a Christian. It's about being the type of person who lives their entire life with eternity and with Christ at the center of it. What I'm doing, is it reflecting uh, eternity well? Is what I'm doing going to make a difference, not just right here and right now, but is it going to make a difference here and now? Because it is important. We don't totally live in heaven because we do live here today. But is it going to make a difference from now on, dot, 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 etc.? Is now going to make a difference for eternity? Am I chasing what's going to make a difference? We wake up as believers every morning asking ourselves, and what am I, is what I'm pursuing, living for, thinking of, eternally focused or is it earthly focused? Am I completely consumed with the here and now to make sure that I have all these things and live this certain way? Or am I to the point in my life when I can say, you know, things may not be working out like the world thinks they should work out. But I know that I'm serving my God and I realize that in the midst of this, that eternity is my focus. And when we start thinking that way, all of a sudden, like, our perspective changes, our perspective shifts. And we think, you know, that thing over there, it's not so important anymore. That thing I really, really needed or really wanted or wanted for my family or whatever, these good things, you know, that's not as important as our family going in this direction and doing this thing and following God and focusing on eternity. And Paul continues with what it means to identify with Christ. Colossians 3 Verses 3 and 4. For you have died, and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. And we're going to talk about that hidden in just a second. When the Messiah, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Living a life in light of our identity with Christ, number one, pushes us to focus our lives on eternity, but number two, means our lives will not make sense to the world. Hang on, let's read that last verse one more time. Hang on. For you have died, and your life is hidden in the Messiah, with the Messiah in God. When the Messiah, who is your life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Nope, I don't see it. I don't see it. I, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't get what you're saying there. Well, as I was looking here, I, I looked at this, this uh, phrase, hidden with Christ in God, and I was like, what, what in the world does that mean? It could mean a lot of things. And so I went, some people... Uh, you know, a lot smarter than, than me. Uh, they've studied the Bible and just started looking and asking the question, what does this mean? What is he trying to say? And there's some different kind of opinions on this. So I just want to be upfront with you guys. There's some different opinions on this. And if you want to have a discussion with me afterwards about it, I'm totally okay with that. 
But what I kind of came to, and as I saw over and over again, is that um, hidden in Christ really means that, or according to a lot of people, means that um, life focused on eternal significance will often seem stupid to everyone living around. It doesn't make any sense. In other words, the good life, your good life as a believer in Jesus Christ is hidden in Christ. And others won't see, in fact, they they may look at it and say, that's lame, even when you're experiencing the good life in Christ. If we look at it kind of from an example, maybe it'll help us understand. In that moment when you have enough money to buy a bigger house in a nicer neighborhood, but you choose not to because you desire to support missions with the raise that you got from work more than you desire to have a bigger house, you lean back and say, ah, in Jesus, if you're focused on eternity, you lean back and say, now this is living. And everybody else looks at you and says, it makes no sense, man. Giving your money away? I don't get it. Or you leave that good job to become a full-time missionary and you leave family and you leave friends and you leave the comfy home you had and you go live in the mountains of Asia without any plumbing. And you look at someone in the face and you say, I wouldn't trade it for the world. And they go, huh? You don't have a toilet. And you're like, eternity. Or that time you were just absurdly, obscenely generous. You got this car, it was new to you, but you realize that God actually brought that car into your life because someone else needed it, and you gave it away. And it hurt, but you're like, not for now, for eternity. And you said, it ain't nothing but a thing. Or how some of you guys show up at 7.30 a.m. on your day off. This isn't my day off. This is the day that I work. And I show up at 7.30 because I'm paid to. But I have huge respect for you guys that show up early and stay late on your day off to come up here and set up church so we can have church in a school so the people can hear about Jesus and about God and about the great things uh, that God has for them. And you come here and you set up and everybody goes, I like my sleep too much. And you say, no, I find joy in serving. So I know some mornings it's hard. I'm paid to do it. It's hard to wake up some mornings, right? I know some mornings you're like, I don't want to do it. But then you get here and you get in the midst of it and you realize that your work that you're doing on Sunday morning, setting up speakers and setting up signs and setting up uh, kids stuff, your work that you're doing on Sunday morning is just as much worship to God as the praise that you sing during the music section of the service. And you find joy in your service. Or when you move from a nice part of town to a poorer part of town because you want to be involved in a new ministry. Or you want to minister to a certain group of people. Or you want to be involved in a new church. And people say, "Ah, don't you know what kind of people live there? You don't want to be with those kind of people. And you go, that's exactly where I want them. Because I don't care how much money they make. They are loved and cared for by God and by, and because I am identified in Christ. And because I love my Savior so much, I live out that love toward God. Our view of what makes sense changes. Our view of what is a smart choice changes. Because our views become elevated beyond this world and they become elevated beyond, this, beyond ourselves and be, start being focused on another person, Jesus Christ, and pleasing him. And it is going to blow some people's minds. And they're going to think you're a fool. And they're going to talk bad about you. And you go, yeah. This is right. As long as you're following the Bible, as long as you're following Scripture and what you're doing in your life matches up with the Word of God, yeah, this is right. And then, 
This is where it all turns around. Get back to uh, this verse, therefore, uh, right here. Your life is hidden in the Messiah. It doesn't make sense. They won't see it. Now, verse 4, when the Messiah, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. In other words, when it hasn't made sense before, when Jesus comes back, talked about that, this, this idea that Jesus is coming back at the end. We read all about it in Revelation, some of the books at the end of the Bible. Uh, Jesus comes back where it didn't make sense before. They look and say, oh, now I guess it's not about here. It's about forever. You don't find who you are in what others think. You find who you are in Christ. He continues with the implications for the life identified with Christ. Therefore, verse 5, therefore put to death what belongs to your worldly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, God's wrath comes on the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. I'm going to kind of jump forward here. It's not on the screen, so Tyler, don't follow me. Jump forward here just a little bit. I just want to read something out of verse 8. He gives another list of things that shouldn't be, things that we should put away. But now you must also put away the following. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. In other words, he's saying that, um, that when we love Christ so much, it urges us to destroy that old part of ourselves. It urges us to destroy those old ways. See, he just finished saying that, that, that all that stuff, that's not you. That's who you once were. And now that Christ has died and was raised, you find yourself identified in Christ and you, are, you died with him and you were raised with him and you find your life in him and you're revealed with him in glory and you can't want to go back to that old life because that doesn't make any sense. Why would you want to do that? No, no, no. Paul's like, that's not you. That's not who you are. Verse 9 and 10 of Colossians 3. You have put off the old self and its practices and have put on the new self. You've taken off the old you and put on the new you. And I want to think about it this way just a little bit. As Paul says to execute your old ways, the Amplified Version picks up on a facet of this passage with a more literal translation of what, the, what it says in the Greek. And it says, so kill the evil desires lurking in your members. <laughs> lurking in your members. The illustration carry, carries this kind of idea of a gangrened limb. If your arm was rotting off your body, you wouldn't keep it there. And you'd lop that thing off because the rest of your body would suffer from it, right? In Paul's life, Paul's like, get rid of that old life. Get rid of that old gangrene life. Get it out. And stop living in that. You're hanging on to parts of it. Cut it off. Execute it. If you watch The Walking Dead. Okay, so here. So, so, did you say you knew I was going there? Neil, I go watch The Walking Dead. Uh, okay, Kyle. Kyle, too. I go watch The Walking Dead over at Neil's house uh, some weekends, uh, some Sunday nights, and so we're, we're both fans. So, but I'm just thinking through this thing. There are lots of examples I could use, but the one that stuck out in my head, and if you watch The Walking Dead, I don't necessarily recommend that you do, but if you do, maybe that's an old part of your life you need to lop off. I'm still working on that. But if you do, uh, there's this guy named Herschel. This is Herschel. Herschel was the man. I mean, 
is the man. Sorry if you hadn't seen it. Uh, spoiler alert. Herschel was the man. He was like the old grandfather figure. And he was wise and he was a believer. And he read the Bible and like, man, you just you love it. He had so much wisdom to gain. And he was so self-sacrificial and would just give himself at the expense of himself for others. And it was just incredible. One day, they're going through this whole circumstance. I don't need to explain it all to you. They're going through this whole circumstance. And Herschel is walking in a zombie who he thinks is dead. Those crazy, almost dead zombies. Uh, The zombie he thinks is dead bites him on the back of the leg. And and he goes down. Well, if you know anything about how zombie bites actually work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How they actually work. When you get bit, the virus spreads quicker because it's like concentrated. Okay. And then also the infection sets in. And so once you die in the TV universe, not in real life, once you die in the TV universe, you come back as a zombie because, you know, whatever. And so if you die from infection or gangrene, you die and it happens quickly. Okay, so a lot of background you don't need to know, but there's, all right. So he gets bit. He's screaming in pain on the floor. And there's only one way to save Herschel. And this is what happens. I, I had a video. Mm-mm. I watched it again and just thought, yeah, nobody would ever come back to church. It was that, that graphic. And when you're in the moment and that music is playing and you're watching Rick, who's the star of the show there with the axe, chop off his leg, you're like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. But he was saving his life by chopping off his leg. And you understand it. And, and, and Herschel goes on to live a lot longer. Spoiler alert. But in our lives, in a sense, let's get back to Paul, right? In our, in our lives, it may be graphic. It may be painful. But the, in the end, it saves your life. Because these old things, these rotten things, these things that are destroying you are no longer who you are because who you are is identified in Christ. In your new life. And today, some of you are still holding on to those old parts of your life. You're holding on to your old priorities before you became a follower in Jesus Christ. You're holding on to old sins as they are a part of who you are, you think. They're the old you. You're holding on to old ways of thinking and what you set your mind on. You're holding on to old habits and old passions old perspectives on life, and your old concerns. Paul says, get rid of it. Because all it is, is rotting the rest of you. A life lived in the light of our identity with Christ insists we focus our lives on eternity, means our lives will not make sense to the world, and urges us to destroy our old rotten ways. And he's graphic. Kill it. Destroy it. Get it out. Others of you, are living in such a way that your life just makes too much sense to the world. I don't know what that means for everybody. But your priorities aren't in heaven. They aren't focused on eternity, but they're focused on the right now. I deal with this. It's like, ugh, it's me too many times. Some of you need to think of real ways to shift your priorities from this life to the next. What does what I'm doing now mean for eternity, my perspective is not here, but it's here. The things above. And no, none of this is going to make a lot of sense to everyone around you when you start changing and shifting how you live your life. 
But if you're following Scripture, you should take that as a compliment. One thing you're going to find, actually, and this is really interesting. Christians, and I'm not saying they're not Christians. They just might be people that are holding on to the old things in themselves, like we all do, are going to look at what you're doing. And for you, for them, they may have an eternal perspective. I can't judge what their perspective is for their life. But for you, their perspective is very much earthly. It's very much of this world. It's not thinking about heaven. And when you go to do something, you think it's something great for God, it doesn't have, man, it doesn't have to be going off to the mission field to Asia. It could be something much simpler than that. But whatever it is, you think this is what God wants. This is eternally significant. This is what I'm going to do. They look at you and they go, they're Christians now, and they go, dude, you got a family and you're going to do that? And it doesn't make sense to even believers sometimes. And if you are in, if you have people speaking wisdom into your life, if you are lining up with God's word, if you are following what God wants for your life, and it doesn't make sense to believers that are really concerned about your earthly well-being, and it doesn't make sense to unbelievers who obviously would be concerned about the things of this earth because this is what they have, you're probably on the right track. So now, what now? Now what? Someone should be thinking about what God wants you to change. What perspective in your life needs to change? What's that thing that God, the Holy Spirit, every week, Pastor Clay gets up here and speaks, or today, that God has been speaking to you about, the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you about? It's just that nagging feeling in the back of your head, just like, psst, perspective's in the wrong place. Psst. You need to take care of this. This is the old Thanks, Ivy. We're back to Building on the Basics, our current series with Pastor Clay. And the next lesson in the series continues next week, so we hope you'll join us. We invite you to come worship with us at Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. We gather each Sunday morning in a casual and comfortable atmosphere and celebrate the goodness of our God. Cross Culture Church may be a little different from what you're thinking. Sure, we're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. A community of believers where Jesus is revealed in the lives of each person. Real people who truly care. Solid biblical teaching from Pastor Clay Stevens. And the most energetic, fun, and safe kids program around. Find out more at crossculturelife.org. I want you. Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.